Hi everyone, this is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. All right, welcome back, everyone, to another episode of DC Power Hour. We've got the battery Blarney duo here, plus one. We've got another George. So what's better than one George? Well, two Georges. So so we've got George Turner, who is another industry veteran who is, is doing some advising here at Eagle Eye for us as well. So we're happy to have him on board and welcome him to the podcast. George, you want to just maybe give us a quick background on on your experience in the industry? Okay. I started in the battery industry in 1985 with Johnson Controls. And at that time, they, they manufactured flooded batteries. And uh, I did work on some flooded batteries, I did some maintenance slash pairs on flooded batteries. And then I evolved into the service area with Johnson Controls. And we we would do installations and train our service groups on how to repair manufacturing problems that were part of our our products. And they would come into Milwaukee and we'd do do training on how to repair things. And then at the same time, Tom Roman would do a training on how batteries work, why they work, that kind of things. So the training for the service guys was to allow us to... Um, pay a service guy to go out and do the do the repairs versus having me go all over the country to do the repairs. So it worked out good for both of us, for service groups and, and us. So then later, I worked when 1999 is when C&D purchased our specialty battery division of Johnson Controls. So I worked for C&D for roughly 10 years. And then there I was the product, telecom product manager with uh, C&D. And we did training in Attica and I can't remember the name of the town uh, near Attica. I mean, near, near Pennsylvania. So then after that, I got a job with Enersys and I was a product manager with Enersys <clears throat> doing a valve regulated product manager and telecom product manager <clears throat> and flooded product manager. And then ended up being a utility product manager. And then I left Enersys roughly 2018. So now I'm back working for Eagle Eye right now. All right. Happy to have you. And Alan, you you and George have crossed paths before, right? We were just talking about that. I I, I don't know about George P., but Mr. P. will call him. But George Turner and I certainly have. I first met George when he was up in Johnson Controls up there, down the road from you guys now, I guess. And then, of course, I was closely associated with Tom Roman, and uh, Tom was my first co-moderator at VATCON. Yeah, I had a lot of respect for George, for George and to Tom Roman. Unfortunately, Tom kind of sailed off on his motorbike or into the skies or wherever he did, and I've lost contact with him. But anyway, I've had a bit of a cold, so I'm a little bit hoarse. Then last time I met George Turner was... At Enersys, I was up at Enersys, and I forget who was visiting, probably Tom King or Tom King or something like that, John King. And there was a guy sitting in a couple of cubicles down, and I saw the name George Turner. I said, well, I know that name, but he doesn't work for Enersys. He worked for C&D. But anyway, it's been a long road. Okay, what, what I'd like to do today, if you guys are agreeable, I got to thinking the other day, which is dangerous. You know, 50 years ago, early 1970s, there was a lot of change went on. And then we crept into the late 70s, early 80s, and more change was going on. And it was pretty rapid change from a stoic industry like ours. And there was a couple of drivers, I think, for that. One was the development of, first of all, controlled ferrule rectifiers, which were replacing the, the SCR rectifiers. And also on the battery front, when customers... They were, they were moving data centers out of the, or computing out of the data centers and into the customer premise. And the same thing was happening with telecom. It's going into the customer premise. 
And of course, they didn't want these highly reliable, I'll say that, vented lead acid batteries. So customers were shouting for, we want something that's more user-friendly. We want something that's, that is easy to maintain. We want something that's safe. We want this, that, and the other. And of course, the marketing guys said, surely we can do that for you. And then give everybody, everybody else the headaches. And there were headaches. And we'll go into some of them. But So there was this, this change was going on. And also, before that, North America decided to go with a, a calcium additive to their, which were mainly lead antimony batteries at the time. So, because that's the way Bellcore wanted to go, Bell Labs wanted to go. So the whole country turned lead calcium. Unfortunately, Europe didn't go along with that. So they, they stayed with basically plantain cells, pure lead cells. And one of the unfortunate things about lead calcium, although they greatly reduced the watering that was required by lead antimony, they brought upon another problem, and that was positive plate corrosion. So, you know, we had to deal with that at the time. But at the same time, people like George Turner were trying to solve some of the problems that these early releases into the field had caused. And believe you me, they caused problems. They caused problems for the installers. They caused problems for the maintainers. Caused problems for the manufacturers. But everybody was blaming each other. You know, so I went through a, oh, well, that lasted for about five or six years, which probably is about 20 years of my life. So all these changes were going on. So George was, George P, Mr. P was involved with that change as well because he was working on the rectifier side of things and I was working on the battery side of things. So George, if, George T, or George P, Mr. P, uh, do you want to give us your couple of cents worth and then we'll go into some technical discussion? Well, yeah, you're absolutely right. The In the early stages, it was not just the the requirement for a, a smaller battery that needed less maintenance was, was the, the whole idea. And that's what drove the whole concept of both the gel cell and the VR, the, the AGM. It was also the requirement to have a charger that was much smaller because they wanted to put these into the, what they called the six, the subscriber line interface cabinets that we're all familiar with. That's the cream and brown things that sit at the end of developments and actually provide telephone service to uh, all the houses in that area. Uh, they, 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 did not, they did not want batteries that had to be topped up. They were trying to minimize maintenance requirements. And so they also needed a smaller charger. So they moved over into what's today referred to as switch mode. It's uh, high frequency chargers. Didn't have the same development problems with them as we did with some of the older ones, but they were still, they still had their challenges at, at various stages. Uh, but I think uh, what I'd like to do is ask George T much more about that transition when we had to move, when the battery, man battery manufacturers moved over to VRLA, whether gel or otherwise, into production. <clears throat> My understanding was that the actual, the actual chemistry was understood many many years beforehand this was not it was not a new not exactly a new chemistry it was just that it was suddenly realized that it actually had an application and an application that people were really pressurizing the manufacturers to use uh, this technology is that was that right john mm -hmm. that's right that's that's what happened they, george a uh... tape before you jump in george am i right in saying as well with the revolution and the battery chargers you know into switch mode there's another concern we had as well, and that was the regulation and filtering had to be much better as well, but she didn't have that great big capacitor sitting at the end of the rectifier acting that, basically that, as a battery eliminator. So we true. had that problem as well. Is that correct? Yeah, there was. But, you know, the the, the filtering on the, on, the, on the switch mode became really good. In fact, it was better than what's on, a, on an SCR or even a controlled ferrule. Once it's once people understand how to make it, there's for years I fought this thing, especially when I was with Advance on you know working on building and rectifiers back in the UK, was that people seem to think that you could build a power supply and the power supply would act as a rectifier. There's nothing more untrue. The rectifier design is is much more complex to 
if you are going to if it's going to behave properly under all circumstances. So just just a thought process there. So let me give it back to George T. Great. <clears throat> Thanks, George P. And Alan. So getting back onto this, the change, <clears throat> the change that took place that people didn't want a battery room <clears throat> that had to have area for exhaling the hydrogen gases that were given off and it was messy and things like that. So they wanted to evolve into something that could go into your regular office and uh, you didn't have to have a special room where the batteries were, were located. So there are still those applications, but say the smaller UPSs and the, and the telecom remote sites with cellular sites, they, they didn't want, they wanted something smaller. So I did a little research and it looks like Sun and Shine in the 50s developed a, a gelled flat plate battery. So the VRLA battery is a valve regulated lead acid battery. The valve is really important in the lead acid batteries for the valve regulated. So they're, 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 they're developed. So it's, if they were to fail, they would fail open. So you wouldn't over, over gases wouldn't make, put too much pressure within the cells. So the valves, there was a few different kinds in the mid seventies, when Gates came up with their cyclone battery, a smaller AGM battery, which is now owned by Enersys. Their valve or their vent was a simply a cylinder with a rubber cone that went over the top of the cylinder, like a mushroom over the top. And when the battery, if the battery gassed, it would gas and release the gas and then fall back down. So in theory, this battery could be used under water. Um, so it, Gates developed different sizes of that smaller cells. And then they, those were pure lead. They call it like a jelly roll type of, of, of a battery. And then they made smaller sizes, two and a half amp hour. And they just simply series paralleled them together. And then they got larger and larger. And they're still making those batteries today. In the mid eighties, chloride developed a, a flat 10 year AGM type battery. In the, in the, also in the mid eighties, Johnson Controls developed, they took a flooded type size battery and made a a gel battery with that. They had some problems with it. It was such a large size. It really couldn't go on its side because, because of its construction and things like that. And the vent on that battery on the, on the gel battery was a, it's like an umbrella vent where uh, gases would come up through the bottom of the umbrella and burp and then fall back down. So again, it's, if, if it were to fail, it would fail open. So it was, um, a pretty safe, uh, a safe product, but again, it was a gel battery, and it it had some problems with that. And then JCI moved on to six and twelve volt lead calcium batteries. The ceramic vents were embedded within the cover of the battery, so again, it wasn't anything really external. In the nineties, JCI made AGM UPS and telecom batteries. Telecom batteries have thicker grids, and UPS batteries have thinner grids. And then the uh, 1999 C&D purchased the specialty battery division of Johnson Controls, and they continue to make those batteries. And then getting further into the two, year 2000s, developed a pure lead 6 and 12 volt batteries. Again, they have the vents positioned in the cover, but they developed a way to roll or manufacture pure lead batteries, uh, either by purchasing the lead in a roll from the smelter or they would make it themselves. They're still making those today. And then in the 2000s and, and, and future, there's been many different 20-year type batteries made of the AGM type where they fit on their sides and they fit in, on their, on the, in cabinets that can be easily maintained with easy access. You don't have to reach over the top. Everything is front, front access for the maintenance people can do their, do their work and things like that. And they've had a good success with those, with those products. They had a few hiccups in the beginning, but they've, we, we did those problems out and they are getting good life out of those, out of those products. So that's basically the, the evolution of, of the battery. I was involved ever since the eighties, 2017. So I've seen quite a bit of the evolution of, of the product and it's, it was a major change from flooded batteries into smaller and, and people are working on lithium now. So that's another, the next, the next big stage for, for the industry.
You're talking to two other people here, George T. That lithium is just a bad word. Okay? I, I agree. It's we're not even going to discuss it. Okay. But what I'm interested in is, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't the wasn't the earlier Sonnenschein design? They simply added silica to the silica. To, mm -hmm. to the actual electrolyte. So it was it was still filled with electrolyte, but it was then gelled within the electrolyte. Well, I can't speak of how Sunshine did it, but uh, the way Enersys did it, they would add liquid fume silica to the electrolyte, and it would keep as long as they kept it moving, it it would it could be injected inside. Okay. And then after it's set up during formation, they would or development, I should say, and during development they would charge it, and that's when the cracks would go through the gel to allow energy to go back and forth through that. But so yeah, it was fume silica that. Once it stopped moving, it would set up firm, not mm -hmm. hard firm, but firm. I guess fume silica was what was used to make tomato sauce thick or ketchup. <laughs> same, same kind of same kind of idea. I think some of the batteries got ketchup instead of mm -hmm. fume silica, to be honest. But no, it, it's, it's interesting because today, isn't it? The the move forward from that, and the separator is now a separate gelled pouch rather than filling the whole cell. Well, they put they put it inside a tube, you know, inside a apartment. Mm -hmm. you know, I haven't I haven't seen that, but because Enersys, my last years at Enersys, I have I wasn't they weren't making a gel. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I've got a picture of that someplace. Okay. That it, it, so, so anyway, George, uh, thanks for that little little history. I have some experience in that as well, but sometime probably late eighties, I was up at uh, visiting Power Battery, who no, no longer existent, but we all remember Power Battery well, for the good, or the bad, or the ugly. But they were working on a battery that it's essentially a gelled AGM battery. So the great part, part property of that was one of the shortfalls of AGM, as you know, George, is that there's not good contact between the electrolyte and the case. So it causes problems with heat dissipation. But with the gelled AGM, the gel was in contact with the case and made for greater heat dissipation, which I suppose, I never really thought about it, but I suppose that was why the darling of the cable industry was the gelled, gelled electrolyte battery. Is that correct? Well, they liked that, yeah, because they were up in a pole. They were up in Alpha Wood. You know, put them up in a telephone pole. So yes, they love the gel product. But they since have moved over to a pure lead type type battery because the pure lead handles the heat better than the lead calcium products. No, so, it's, it's pure lead, a kind of a misnomer. Just like lead. sealed sealed maintenance free. I hated that term. It, it's pure lead. Oh. They buy they buy it from the smelter. It's ninety nine point nine percent. They say so. It's no. Uh, what about additives like tin? They they really don't add any, any extras. The, it went from, so AGM, calcium, AGM, calcium, tin. And now you say where we are at, at the moment is, is AGM pure lead. Right. So yeah, we've the, gone the full cycle, basically, back to Mr. Plante's days. It's, it's hard to, to manufacture. That's why a lot of people just don't do it. It's It's hard to... So they when they bought they buy the the rolls of of pure lead and then they punch holes in it to make room for the paste and those batteries are cold rolled it's called cold rolled pure lead so they've actually been machined so they have a real strong grid it's been punched and then when you when it's punched it actually actually gets stronger so that's why they for telecom they get longer life that way the the UPS it's a it's a they have a vat of hot molten lead and they they have a cold wheel that they they wheel they, they have a whole strip that they get so it's not necessarily rolled to make it stronger it's just a strip of of lead that they're going to punch to put the uh, lead paste in the in those holes so those are used oh. for like telecom applications is it a lot of terms around is thin plate pure lead mm -hmm. Would you like to just briefly talk about that? Well, it's thin plate is just it's there's a lot of a lot of grids within the within the S batteries need 
high power. So it's like when you when you add up how many plates you how many positive plates you've got, you get more power. So the more positive plates you, you have in series, I mean sorry, in parallel, you, you get more more power. So that was a thin thin uh, TPPL type product. So it's it's compared to a thick grid because Anersys also makes a submarine battery that's uh, a thick thick grid simply because you you have more you have more thicker separators give you more electrolyte so you don't have to a this battery only needs maybe 15 minutes worth of runtime so you can have a thinner separator a tele telecom application you have to have more space in between the plates because you need more electrolyte there to consume so that's part of it the thin plate or less in the thicker plate for tell applications. George, I've got to let George talk a little bit about chargers in a minute. But I'm, I'm asking questions about batteries at the present moment. I, 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 okay, go ahead, George. But my Please. question here is, is that are both the negative and positive plates pure lead? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. okay. And then, then they uh, they have slightly different paste, a little little bit of different paste, but it's it, it's pure lead. And they actually, when they paste the battery, they they put a piece of paper over the top to keep the the uh, paste from sloughing out so it's okay. a it's a paper paper they put a paper product over over the top so it's it's really they've refined that quite well okay because somebody somebody once told me that the the negative plates weren't they were they weren't pure lead they were well I, I i guess i'll have to do a little bit more research no 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 i, I just i was that's why i asked the question because i would to me it didn't make sense but it was, you hear well, a lot of things when you're out in the field. Yeah. To me, it didn't I, make I, sense. I, I was thinking, how are you getting chemical reaction? But we'll, we'll leave that for another, you know, for another podcast. But what I was going to say to, to George Turner was that, or ask him, most of these questions, as you understand, George, or I already know the answer, but I want to hear it coming from you. But the, one of the big problems always has been that, uh, and I, I'm not talking about the utility market here. I'm talking about the telecom market and the UPS market or the IT market. Uh, typically, and for which you both know, uh, the valve-regulated lead-acid battery does not last as long in a UPS application as it does in a telecom application. Now, with the, And that's why we give different warranties or most companies give different warranties based upon how the battery's been used. But with the pure lead battery, are you making any differential? Are they making, when I say you, I mean the, the companies you work for, are they making any different, any difference with the warranty, whether it's used in a UPS or a telecom application? The Intersys just developed that then play pure lead for UPS applications is there's it's it's how can i say it there's more noise running through the battery when you have higher voltage uh running through the running through the battery so there's more uh can't remember the name i have to think about that a little bit more but they're they're simply more more i can't remember anyway whether you have 360 volts or 480 volts there's more more energy ripple. running through ripple current there you go running through tom, tom tell me all about that and then compared to a 48 volt system, so even even 60 cells, there's there's more than uh, the 48 volts. So that's that's part of the problem. You have to keep the the ripple within the limits. But the, the ripple is simply a matter of on and off charge. So you're charging and discharging 60 times a second, that that kind of thing. So it's to keep that at a minimum. So that's what better rectifiers are uh, are needed to to do that. Um, as far as the warranty goes, um, the telecoms have to pass the Tacordia test to to get the, to the ten years. Um, there is no telecom or Tacordia test for the UPS batteries. So what I understand is they're still getting like six to eight years worth of uh, life out of their thin plate pure lead products because with without adding calcium, there's much less corrosion. Because the corrosion is is where you have the similar metals between the calcium and the, and the lead, so without having calcium added, you have less corrosion. So that's why they 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 don't corrode as as much. Um, 
the way they corrode, it's it's usually from the bottom up. That's just the way they, they they corrode, and so that stronger up by the tabs. But but they do they do corrode, but it's but it's much less than a lead calcium product. That's interesting, George. Hey, Mr. P. Yes. Let's let's talk a little bit about chargers. Uh, not so much how they evolved. You know, chargers are very very slow to evolve, but some of the problems, some of the problems, particularly with the acceptance of the switch mode rectifiers, especially the convection cool switch mode rectifiers. And uh, let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, the, the, the whole history of the switch mode rectifier is, I hate to say it, but way advanced in Europe in comparison to the US, especially in the utility side. We talk about, you said don't talk about too much about the history, but the very first switch mode rectifiers were actually specified by British Telecom for their, what was called their System X telephone exchange. And they contracted three different companies within the UK to develop these to a specific specific requirement, size, shape, all the rest of it was standard. As you know, I ended up working, I was director of engineering for the, the last of the companies that had all been put together doing these and it was not doing the batteries, but doing the charger part of it. So the, the chargers were also required. The big thing they had at that time was they wanted them to be convection cooled because that was that was British Telecom's requirement. They wanted convection cooled rectifiers. And, and they, you know, they did a good job. Also, all three of the companies that were building these rectifiers made a, a superb job of putting them together, extremely reliable. And some of those were then introduced into the, the US through a, a company called PCP at the time. They, they started to market them. But again, it went into the telecom industry, not into the, into the utilities. The, the, whole, the whole reason for the concern about fans, because you can obviously make the, you know, even the convection you were by was still quite large. If you put a fan on it to cool it, you got the size way down on it. But... In those days, fan reliability was not that high. That was one of the biggest concerns. But again, in, in Europe, the I think Siemens were the first to accept the convection cooled switch mode. They were one of our largest customers at the time. So I know a little bit about them. But they were almost exclusive switch mode but and convection cooled. Even they were moving over to looking at fan cooled devices. But here in the States here, we still have a lot of reluctance, in part because, let's be honest, the primary manufacturer of chargers within the utility industry built a superb SCR charger. It just keeps working. You know, I have been to locations where they're on their fourth battery system and it's still the same charger, you know. But the reason they're on this fourth battery system is normally because they didn't get the float voltage quite right, but that was you know, a separate subject to be discussed. But you know, today, we I think we, we are now getting acceptance with the, the, the switch mode, in, in part because of some of the, the regulations that have come out with, with, through NERC, the, uh, the governing body of all the standards in the, the utility industry, and uh, they're looking to add redundancy into the network. And that's where the switch mode charger really starts to, to win. You know, you can you can put two large SCR chargers in, no problem at all. But if one of them fails, basically today we don't you you go and, you have to go and change it out, physically go and change it out. Because in the days when you and I were working in the when we first started and when you first had me over in the US, I have taken more SCR and control ferrules apart than I care to think and replaced cards and replaced you know, semiconductors to repair them. That doesn't happen today. You change it out and send it back to the manufacturer for repair. Well, you know, it, 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 just to send two electricians out to take one 50 amp charger off the wall and mount another one in its place is time and it's, you know, I've lost the redundancy at that point. My standard comment when I'm trying to talk about switch mode is, you know, to, to use the Geico ad, you know, it's so simple, I can send a salesman out to do it. 
that's probably ruined me with the sales team yet again, but it doesn't matter. But, you know, it is. It's very simple. They can they can actually carry spare a spare rectifier module in the service trucks, and if they need it, they just take it out, plug it in, and that's it. So they don't. And we're going further. There's there's all sorts of other things that we can do with with chargers. We're working. There's all sorts of ideas now, especially in fact driven by some of the the NERC requirements. We're looking at ways that the charger itself can be part of the battery management system. You know, be able to report its status a lot better than we could with some of the older designs. Does that cover enough for you, sir? Yeah, the you know the utility industry in the US has been very very slow to adopt the you know new technologies. First of all, with VRLA batteries, some utilities still shun VRLA batteries, although the reliability, in my mind, has increased probably by one or two hundred percent from the early days. And they also don't like first four rectifiers, and th their reasoning is. And I understand it is that, you know, why change change what works? You have to, these very, very reliable SCR chargers. And they say, you know, why should we change? So, but they're being forced into this change, as you rightly said, George, you know, with the TPL and regulations. And I don't mean TPPL, George Turner, <laughs> TPL. If you understand that George explained the difference, but uh, they they're going to have to go that way. You know the they're you know like they, just like the old days where you know Bell led the telecom industry. That's they wanted it done. That's the way you did it, and that's the battery that you manufactured for it. But things have changed a lot, and now especially with the Electric Reliability Council, Federal FERC, FERC, hovering over everybody, they're looking really hard at all of these utility installations that have been around for years. Some people don't even... You, I, I've visited hundreds of utility plants, generation plants, almost all fossil fuel. And they asked the guy, where's the battery room? And he scratched his head and say, well, wait a minute, I've only been here a couple of years, but I think it's, I think it's down that building there. So that's the way, that's the way it is. And, George, you and I had some experience with one of our state agencies here. We went down to Washington, D.C. and started doing some battery surveys. You've never seen such a, a mess, you know, with corrosion, everything. But people are being forced into doing things differently. And I think that's one of the things, great things that's forcing the industry now to make the changes. But one thing we haven't talked about, and that's battery monitoring. And that's something I grew up with as well. I'm sure George Turner did as well. I know you did, George, George P. But, you know, that's advanced a lot from the early days, from the, when Glenn and Albert and I were talking about it to right up to the present day. But the, George Turner, do you think there's a growing need for battery monitoring? And then we talked to George Peterson and you tell us where we are today with battery monitoring. So for, for utility operations, yes, they're mandated to, to maintain their their rooms and battery rooms. They don't want to have a outage, um, so that's why they they want to make sure that they have accurate data coming from the batteries, because there's been many fires at uh, at stations that if the relay doesn't open or close, it's they could have a real fire. So that's that's what reason. And then people would lose power and it would take a long time to recover it. This applications as well, I think, would be would be wise to use a monitoring system because of the importance of the, the product. You can't really lose any data. Can't remember if it's one cycle or, or two cycles of, of a 60 cycle system. Or if they if there's they lose power for those short cycles, sixty you know one sixtieth of a second, it they lose data. Can't afford to lose like a bank can't afford to lose data, or an airline can't afford to lose um, that kind of information. It's not so important for telecom, but 
but they with redundant redundancy they would they would be able to ride through that kind of thing so yes there's there's a need for a monitoring especially utility and then i believe you as well george uh, turner uh before we go over to mr p uh if i was to ask you a question what do you think is the two most important things you could monitor on a free or light battery what would you tell me current flow current i think is really important any changes in flow current because that's where your heat's going to come of course voltage uh, would be another thing look for outliers that kind of thing so voltage and, and current and i guess impedance you need three things too in front of resistance okay I, oh. I would add temperature to that but as well but very good yes current definitely i'm glad you said that so george p what do you want me to say <laughs> well no is where we are with monitoring at the moment from the early days of basically which which was ohmic measurements and you know whether it was whichever technology the, the company used but where, where are we today or where should we be oh where we are today is well it's difficult to say because we are whether we like it or not a large number of our monitoring systems that are out there are still using are still based on designs that were done some 20 years ago. And don't get me wrong, they, they produce good data. But the I think the biggest problem we have today is not so much actually the monitor itself. It's the fact is that when the monitors first started, the amount of, shall we say, identification you're effectively allowed to do was limited. You could give the, you, you could tell the owner all the data and you could give them some advice but you couldn't say that the system was going to fail simply because the lawyers wouldn't let you it was considered to be far too much of a risk and that that was effective because in those days we still had battery technicians people that actually would look at the data and understand it to me that's probably the biggest change we're having to look at today is because we no longer have those people within an organization that have the level of knowledge to be able to look at the data we're collecting to understand <clears throat> why you know what's happening with the with the information. So the the whole point about it here is is I think that a we've got to you know we've still got to collect the data very accurately and there's no question about it depending on where you are, if you're working in the UPS industry, that same ripple that we talk about causes great problems when you're trying to get accurate readings across the cell. On the utility side, we, we still have noise, especially in some of the substations. But it's probably the, the more important part is this is this level of analysis. What could, uh, how, how are we going to help the actual end user understand what risk they're at. And I think that's probably the, the, the most important from my perception anyway at the present moment is that we need to move away from just saying that uh, the, this particular cell has a high ohmic value or this. We need to do a level of risk assessment that says tells the customer that this is this is where they all all the items that are questionable, okay. This is the risk you are, or you have a potential risk of failure to it. You're not making the brand statement, you're not telling them what to change, but at least you're pointing them in the right direction. Because in the end, that is what all these standards that NERC are producing, it's all about limiting the risk of failure. And there's a, you know, I could probably do three hours talking about that, the different ways to do it. But part of that is going to be how we present the data we're collecting. Slightly in a different format, and not not just as a collection of individuals, because in fact, as George T would totally agree with me, is you know, if one if one set of data is out, there's a good chance there's other parts of it out as well. Because once the electrochemical reaction changes, you know, if you have a a cell that is is going up in ohmic value much faster than the rest, 
it, it doesn't need to reach a limit for you to know that that cell has problems and you have to do something about fixing it, you know? But we have, part of the problem is that with remote monitoring, which becomes part of the battery monitoring system, is that people want limits, you know? If it's below this, it's okay, and if it's above this, it's bad. And that's not the way a battery is, no? You have to, yeah, you have to uh, monitor it over time and look for changes. So as a matter of with today's technology, it's, it's already there. So you can compare one quarter to the next quarter values and then see where it's going, getting better or worse. You can't look at one set of data and say, okay, it's good or bad. You have to have history. Mm -hmm. And I was at many sites where people would just simply record the data and didn't do anything about it. Um, one site I remember, one of the bosses retired and, and nobody nobody picked up on evaluating the data. And then the worst case, thermal runaway took 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 place because over the last five years, the batteries had not even made, they've been, it took readings, but they didn't do anything with them because the guy retired. So anyway, so it's, that's one advantage of having a monitoring system. You, you can have a central, central person see that data that that kind of helps quite a bit to have a qualified uh, person and um, i'm still learning about eagle eyes monitoring systems so i i can't speak much much about it but i'm eager to learn about it oh you, you know basically we are we are looking at becoming the the next generation of monitoring but in some cases we have to be careful because the potential customers still want to see the data in the way the they've always seen it you know and they're still they're, they they haven't yet accepted that it's um, that some of the some of the diagnostic tools that we can use uh, make more sense but that's just that's part of it hey you mentioned something earlier on about the charger becoming the monitor and uh, I think that's that's going to happen maybe next next week next month next year but we're nearly there i think and the other thing is the we talked years ago about putting the monitor inside the battery and with some of the modern processors and things like that i don't think that's too difficult so that's i think that's a couple of things that's going to happen with respect to monitoring i don't know how much time we have left but let's briefly talk about the big lie. The big lie is Li, lithium ion. I like to say, but a lot of people disagree with me. To me, it's a stopgap measure at the moment, I think. If you're looking for reliability, you're going to go with, you know, you're going to go with lead acid technology, preferably blended lead acid. And lithium, you know, it's got a lot of positive things, but it's got a lot of drawbacks as well. And people are so scared of it. And I'm very surprised that they're allowing lithium ion inside the computer room. Very surprised. Inside occupied spaces. Now, it gets a lot of bad press because of the few fires they've had. But, you know, few is few too many in my mind. So, George well, Turner, is this going to be a battle as far as the manufacturers are concerned? Or are they doing another VRLA act when they said that's what the customers want that's what we're going to give it well anderson's got out of the valve of the lithium ion products back 10 years ago when they had a lot of um, explosions shouldn't say rapid disassembly of the containers at at&t sites so they they got out of it for a while i believe they're right back into it now i'm not sure what kind of product it is but the problem with lithium lithium ion is how do you put it out no real way you can't just throw water on it um it's just it's just so hot so uh, volatile it's just how do you put it out I mean, when it first came out fire departments didn't know how to, how to put it out they just put water on it and the next morning it would start it over again so that's 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 one of the main problem with, with that product is it's how do you how do you extinguish it mm -hmm. and they it, and it, it, people have had Car batteries, you know, the, the you know they put those double A size batteries in the 
and the Tesla's cars, and they have problems. And there's also the computer fires. Years ago, they had, you know, people had, they showed computer fires and then they just simply overheated and overcharged. So that's, that's when you have all these two volt cells, actually it's 3.6 cells, volt cells that in series parallel, it, it, they can, they can cause problems. But one, one bad module can throw off the whole, whole shoot match. I think you you said something a little bit earlier, Alan, about the fact is the idea about the charger becoming part of the battery. Let's say not monitored, but part of the battery management system. In fact, that's one of the things that has actually occurred within the lithium, not on the car side or anything like that. But there's a couple of the the manufacturers that actually have worked with one of the large lithium companies to get interaction between the battery management system on the lithium to control, or as um, we said at one of the conferences, to help manage the, the management system. If, they, if it's getting too hot or overcharging or undercharging, the ability to actually send information to the charger and change the charger voltage to help the management system in maintaining the correct voltage. And I know there's a couple of the companies I've, I've worked on that. So, but it was mainly for, I think, telecom applications more than anything else. So you, know, you, you were right in the sense where you're going there. It's the, the big, it seems to be at the present moment, based on everything I've been involved in, is like you, as George T said, you know, pour water and you go, Hold on, lithium and water don't get on. Why are we pouring water onto lithium? And the way it was explained to me was that, yeah, they have to, in order to install a lithium system in some states, it has to be close to a, a water source that can supply a high volume of cold water. It's not to actually put the fire out. It's to keep the rest of the modules cool so they don't catch fire as a result of overheating. You know? So it's, you're basically saying that whatever's caught fire is just going to have to burn itself out. The exercise is to keep the rest of it cold so that it doesn't catch fire. No? I know so, I bought my, my grandson a one of those scooters for Christmas, and I got my son a, a timer so that he could only plug it in for so long because you don't want to overcharge those those batteries so if, if it said recharge for up to five hours the timer i bought them is it turns off at four hours make mm -hmm. sure it's, it doesn't overcharge the battery so that's what if you limit the the time the charger is on you have more you have more a lot more control yeah i think i think that's one up in new york they seem to have a lot of fires on on scooters and things that cause major damage to multi-level built, multi-occupancy buildings. And it's simply because they bring it in, they plug it in and they leave it on. You know, comes in at six o'clock at night and it's still charging at six o'clock in the morning. And that's that's a guaranteed way. They don't have the level of controls. There's also the fact, George, that places like New York is a big black market for batteries, you know, cheap batteries. And, you know, more and more cases of finding out that batteries that aftermarket batteries or whatever are being used for electric scooters and things like that. But what made me laugh was that they, they you got to know, know New York. And I guess it's a little bit like Chicago. But they advise people to leave the electric scooters outside overnight. You're not going to have a battery problem the next morning. It just won't be there. Somebody else is going to have that battery prop. So how are we doing for time, David? Yeah, let's just go around the horn and wrap it up. Okay. So who wants to kick it off? And who wants George Peterson will probably want the last word. So So the, the battery evolution over the over the last 50 years has improved dramatically. Quality levels are are much better than what they were. Valve regulated is is way of the future, but there will always be the flooded battery systems as well for uh, larger systems and uh, ones that uh, have to be more reliable 
because of the technology that's uh, been known for many many years so in there you can look inside you can you can figure out if there's something different unusual about this one cell compared to the others that's one big advantage for flooded batteries so there is there'll always be the market for the big flooded batteries but uh, by far the portable smaller regulated will be way with the future and like we said lithium is still out left field so it's not it has such great potential but it's also very dangerous well thank you for showing us today george i'm sure you'll be become a semi-permanent fixture on these podcasts you know i like to say that in actual fact i wrote a peer-reviewed paper for batcon on it i wish you know your battery is only as good as your as how you charge it and so that's that's been the case all along and so eagle eye we try to make sure you do that basically make sure you do it properly how to do it what you need to do how do you maintain it so not only the battery but the charge so the two have to be used in conjunction with each other so over to you mr p well, all I can say, Alan, is uh, thank you. And could Dave, could we have this little at the end recorded, take out separately, where Alan actually gave me the chance to have the last word? Because I've spent most of my 50 years knowing him when he's always wanted the last word. Not only because he was disagreeing with me. Yeah, well, the podcast isn't over yet. <laughs> I, I, I just didn't want to look bad in front of George Turner, George. <laughs> I was going to say something I had to change. Right, right. Okay, what's the last word? I think it was an excellent podcast. There is so much we can talk about at every level in this. I would then talk to do the piece on uh, education because at the present moment, uh, our, our customers don't have the knowledge they actually require in order to do the, the maintenance required to get the uh, life out of the batteries themselves. You know, we could we can build the best battery, but if you don't look after it, uh, it's going to die. It's as simple as that. You know, and there's a lot of I think unfortunately there's a lot of stuff now out on the web that people are looking at and and getting bad information. You know, well, uh, to think about the you're putting material in corrosive material you're putting in corrosive acid so it's wearing out as soon as you put it you add acid to it so it's just a matter of time so that's that's why you have to monitor it you have to keep track of uh, how much corrosion has taken place yep as my as i often say in some of the lessons is that uh, there's a lot of similarity between the human being and the battery you know we, we we're born with the same anticipated life but depending on how you're treated and what you do with it depends on how long you actually live. What's the same? How come I've lived so long then, George? That's a question I've been asked a long time. <laughs> no? See, I did get the last word. There you go. <laughs> Defying the odds. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks, gentlemen. Great podcast. Love to, to get your experience and your knowledge here for all the listeners. So we'll do it again. Thanks, George Turner, for joining us. And we look forward to the next time. Thanks, guys. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.